Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. Her name is Helen Fry. She comes to us from the UK, and she's just published a book. It was published last month in the UK, but here in the States, it was published November 30th, 2021. The title of the book is Spy Master, The Man Who Saved MI6. It's really a fascinating book. I love reading books about World War II, and this is really a fantastic edition. This is not the first book that Helen, Helen Fry has written. She's written 25 books, and you can check out all of her books on her website, www.helen-fry.com. Um, she uh, has written extensively on the Second World War with particular reference to the 10,000 Germans and Austrians who fought for Britain and also intelligence and espionage. Helen's book, MI9, A History of the Secret Service for Escape and Evasion in World War II, has been widely covered in the national press. Her critically acclaimed book, The Walls Have Ears, The Greatest Intelligence Operation of World War II, was featured in the top eight books of the year by the Daily Mail in 2019. She is the leading expert on the secret listeners at special eavesdropping sites by British intelligence in World War II. She has been at the forefront of widespread coverage and in-depth research of the greatest intelligence deception of the war, the bugging of Hitler's generals at Trent Park, North London, as well as Latimer House and Wilton Park in Buckinghamshire. Helen is recognized as the official biographer of MI6 spymaster Colonel Thomas Joseph Kendrick, who we're going to talk about today. She appears frequently in TV documentaries and broadcasts, as well as appearing in live interviews on the BBC and BBC World News. And she can be found on Twitter at Dr. Helen Fry, as well as Instagram and Facebook. She is an ambassador for the Museum of Military Intelligence, an honorary member of the Association of Jewish Refugees, and a trustee of the Medmenham Collection president of the Friends of the National Archives. So some of her other titles, she's been very busy this year. One is Churchill's German Army, the Germans who fought for Britain in World War II, which 2021 is uh, also inside Nuremberg Prison, Hitler's henchmen behind bars, also in 2021. MI9, I already mentioned that earlier, 2020. And then The Walls Have Ears, the edition here in the States of 2019. And there's also a book titled London Cage, the Secret History of Britain's World War II Interrogation Center, 2017. Again, her website is helen-fry.com. But uh, Helen Fry, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Thanks for being on the show. How are you? Oh, it's, well, yeah, it's wonderful, William. Thank you. And hello from London. Awesome. Well, I'm delighted to have you. Really a fascinating book. I loved reading it. Um, can you talk, you have such a long writing history. Can you talk kind of about your writing history and what led you to put this book together, Spy Master, The Man Who Saved MI6. Yeah, Thomas Kendrick. I've been researching his life astonishingly for 20 years, although it's it's culminated in the book now. And if you're writing in intelligence history, especially if you're writing about spies, spy masters in, in the margins there, in the shadows, incredibly difficult to piece together their lives. He is mentioned in the official MI6 history, which came out about a decade ago, but he has just about a paragraph or two. And, you know, those are the kind of people who perhaps are the most important. They just have a flickering mention. And I came across him, yeah, 20 odd years ago in a book about one of his colleagues, Frank Foley. And Foley and Kendrick eventually would be working undercover for SIS, as it then was, now MI6, uh, as British passport control officers, Foley in Berlin, Kendrick in Vienna. Foley went on to save a whole generation of German Jews 
over 10,000, it's reckoned. And he's had a lot of recognition. Uh, our listeners may well recognise him. I mean, we know about rescuers like Varian Fry, uh, not a relative, by the way, Oscar Schindler. We know about all these, these men. But Kendrick is kind of like off the radar. And I read a little bit about him in this book about Foley by Michael Smith. And I thought, you know, if there's a whole book by Michael Smith, surely it's possible for me to write a whole book about Kendrick. And that was the challenge. And just to say, when I started, the family gave me, they knew very little, the family gave me just a few bullet points on a scrappy piece of paper. They said, well, this is all we know. And I wow. thought, well, you know. <laughs> so that's why it's taken so long. And so, but I mean, it is a fascinating, he's a really a part of history, a lesser known, but he was there in very important parts of World War II history. Can you talk about, I mean, it's interesting because I think he was an American born in South Africa, but became uh, involved in the kind of British imperial or empire. Can you talk about his birth and where he came from and how he kind of learned German and other things? Yeah, so he was born in 1881 in Cape Town. So he was actually British, but of American father and um, a South African mother. And his American father purchased the Hotel Metropole in Cape Town, which was the sort of the Ritz of the day. You know, he he purchased it for £16,000 then, uh, equivalent in dollars, I suppose, what, $20,000, $25,000 in the 1880s, 1890s. And so Kendrick was used to that world of high society, of interesting people. So it meant that he grew up being able to mix with ease in all kinds of circles and that would be really important for what he goes on to do because he's he was expert at human intelligence in the end and the american link uh, we'll probably talk about a bit later when we come to the second world war he actually works alongside the nascent developing american intelligence there's a very close relationship he's had a close relationship with america across his lifetime actually uh, and then he serves in the boer war in, in 1901 there in africa and he's eventually between that period 1901 and the outbreak of the first world war in 1914 it affects south africa there's the german occupied parts of the region and he is sent behind enemy lines on a bicycle to gain intelligence for the british i mean it took a lot of courage to do that in the Boer War. And then in that interwar period, I mean before the First World War, that interwar period, he's travelling around the diamond mining communities, working as a stockbroker in South Africa, merging and mixing with all the kind of communities and keeping an eye on the German situation because the Germans were being perceived as a threat in that period because they were starting to develop all kinds of interesting weapons and guns i mean nothing like as sophisticated as they would go on to do in the second world war with technology so very very interesting that the threat in that early part of the 20th century is actually germany of course it would be overtaken by russia later not long after the first world war right so he was there in this kind of heady environment of conflict in the south africa uh, there's a lot of german so he learns german Yes. And also kind of marries a German woman, too. So you kind of see where he's learning, like this is leading up to stuff. He's, he's learning the culture and the language, right? Yeah, so it's after the war. He actually meets this 
this uh, daughter of a German businessman. He's working for the German businessman in the diamond mining industry. And what I've traced in my book, we very rarely look at that incredibly early period. A lot of key figures that go on to shape British intelligence later in the 20th century have served in this period, not necessarily in uniform, but in South Africa, are moving amongst the international diamond mining community. So what you've effectively got, William, is the diamond mining and spies with these international networks. Right. So, you, I mean, you have this very, you have people from all over the world coming to South Africa, different languages, English, the Boers, the Germans. So what happens to him? He gets married. How does he come out of that part of the world? That's the First World War. So he's he's fighting and serving in South Africa, the early part of the First World War. The surrender is sort of taken in July 1915. So, of course, three years before anything like that happens in the armistice in Europe. And then he's transferred later in the First World War to serve in France in intelligence. And he's running agents. He's involved in counter-espionage. He's also at the very end of the First World War interrogating and gaining intelligence from, well, towards the very, very end of the war. They had about 5,000 surrendering German prisoners of war near Arras in France there, near the front line. And he's processing processing them for intelligence, finding clever ways, not roughing them up in interrogation, but finding clever ways to gain intelligence um, ahead of the Treaty of Versailles. Right. So he's there. He's he's made his way to Europe. The the war ends. And what happens next? So he's then posted to Cologne with Frank Foley, I mentioned at the start of the podcast. He's there with a number of figures that would go on to become his agents and spies in Europe in the 20s and 30s. And the interesting threat now is shifting because in 1917, Russian Revolution, the threat that's emerging of the Bolsheviks, of communism, and in that period, the communists are, or the Bolsheviks, should I say, are trying to infiltrate the armies of Europe, which are disbanding, try to infiltrate them and encourage them to overthrow democracy. I mean, that's a very simplistic view. And you think, wow, has anything much changed today? You know, it's like uh, people might kind of think, oh, there's a parallels with today. So he's, he's again, running spies, counter-espionage, keeping an eye on the Bolsheviks. And the crucial moment, I suppose, the turning point for his career where it really ramps up as you know, you you know, if you read in the book, in 1925, he is posted by the head of MI6, uh, who's known as C. You know, he signs his name in green ink, just C. And I, I think it's still a tradition. I understand that happens today. The head of MI6 signs C in green ink. <laughs> so the head of MI6 sends him to Vienna, and in 1925, Vienna is the centre between east and west it's it's replaced paris now as the center of espionage where spies of all kinds of countries are coming in and out and it's mi6's most important center and he's the man who's sent as their senior spy master to map this whole communist threat across Europe. This is before the rise of the Nazis. And he's going into Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, up as far as into Germany eventually. So he's really 
got a handle on Europe and even into Italy, and he has agents working out of neutral Switzerland. Right, and he is under the guise of the passport officer, right? So nobody really, I mean, the inside the British or the UK knows what his real role is, but everybody outside doesn't, right? Oh, it's not even quite as simple as that, as I discovered. And I'm learning, I mean, like yourself, I was learning as I was writing this. And before I forget to say it's really important, I had no help from MI6 in this. I had no access to their archives. So that'll probably give you an idea of how tricky it is to reconstruct the life. And that's why it's taken so long. But yes, he's under cover of British Passport Control Officer. Some of his staff are also working for MI6, or as it was then known as SIS, a secret intelligence service. But there are also members of his staff that don't know that's what he is. They just think he's a passport control officer. So you've got this double layer of secrecy, even within the office. And he's working out of the back rooms. The secretaries, his, his special secretaries, are you know, communicating with agents in Czechoslovakia, Hungary, secreting, letter writing, all that kind of stuff. All the stuff of the James Bond spy fiction. And I think, you know, even his wife probably didn't realise what he was doing. And this is what I found astonishing. She probably also thought he was stamping visas and issuing passports. Right. And so they, so he was interesting. And, and I think you read you wrote that the outsiders thought that it was somebody else in that office who was really the intel, not him, right? I yeah, he, no, nobody could really work out who the top spymaster was in Vienna. Certainly the Nazis couldn't. The Gestapo who were after him couldn't work out who it was. They knew there was a senior MI6 spymaster in Vienna. They just they, they referred to him as the elusive Englishman, which I rather like that. Uh, But if you think also, going back to his life in Cape Town, remembering his American father, who had this mega posh hotel, Kendrick in Vienna is mixing in high society circles. He's mixing amongst the intellectuals. He's going regularly to the Royal State Opera House. He's gathering contacts, but also using journalists, students. He's gathering a whole network because you never know when you're going to need it. So he's regularly throwing cocktail parties. It's a bit kind of Ian Fleming now. And he did know Ian Fleming. They worked together, knew him in this period. Uh, So you could just imagine, can't you, that cultured Vienna. And he's just really enjoying life never really giving away his own political views, but gathering contacts, including amongst the aristocracy. I just find it fascinating. It really is. I mean, and so you have a German speaker mixing amongst the Germans. He's he's very cultured. And yes. I think you have a picture of Ian Fleming in your book, too, in one of the there's mm. lots of pictures. So you can see a lot of these people you're talking about in the book. And so he, the he has this network of all these people that are in uh, journalists. One was Eric Gedier, yes. and some of these Gedier, other. Yes. Can you talk about some of the people that he used to gather information and what kind of helpful information they got? Someone like yes, Eric Gedier was one of his agents. I talk about, and Gedier was highly respected by. Winston Churchill, of course, he wasn't our prime minister at this point in the 30s. But Geddy 
was politically astute and realised was he'd been posted to Germany by his newspaper, but he wanted to be in Vienna. And so he he basically took, you know, they, they kind of said, well, you know, if you want to go to Vienna, you're on your own. And so he works freelance in Vienna and is passing intelligence back to Kendrick. So he's going into Czechoslovakia, into Hungary. And you might think, well, what's the threat? Yes, they are mapping in the late 20s the communist threat and they are following Russian spies and, and Kendrick manages to map this whole network that's working under cover of various institutions. But Getty, they're also, he and other journalists and agents are picking up information about the development, early development of chemical weapons. And, and I found that fascinating, foreign office files. I had no idea that countries like Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia potentially were developing or selling each other early forms of chemical weapons. So it begins to give us a really full picture of the importance of the intelligence he's sending back to London. Right. And so you're seeing the communists are moving in, Bella Kuhn, and things are happening in Hungary. So he's right there. That, and for people who don't know, after World War I, Austro-Hungary split up into these different nations. I think that's important for later on in the story as uh, yeah. Hitler rises to power, right? Yes, it is. And you've got the borders changing. You've got, of course, Czechoslovakia becomes independent. You've no longer got Bohemia and Moravia. These are kind of areas where we associate with Sigmund Freud, for example. And Freud moved into Vienna. And Kendrick would go on to help rescue Freud, actually, after the Anschluss. We may want to mention that a, a little bit later. So I think we get a sense that there is the threat from Russia, the threat from communist ideology. And I don't think we can underestimate that threat. But once the Nazis rise to power and watch Hitler comes to power in 1933, Kendrick now has the double threat. So he is that pivotal point. If you look at Vienna on the map, it's the pivotal point between East and West. He is now spying on not only the Russians, but also on Nazi Germany and the rearmament program he's sending, trying to get agents undercover. And he does succeed into the ports like Danzig and Wilhelmshaven, where they're believed to be developing battleships and new kinds of U-boats. He's trying to assess the threat and and how fast is Germany rearming, which of course was forbidden under the Treaty of Versailles in 1919 at the end of the First World War. So yeah, his workload kind of doubled. Right, and a lot of things are happening. So Dolphus is the prime minister. There's all kinds of uh, left versus right going on in Vienna. It's very tumultuous, right? Can you kind of talk about that? It is that whole cultural world, that whole intellectual life that he enjoyed starts to to crumble in many ways. You, you have the extreme far left, the extreme far right. There was no real middle ground and their tensions are played out in physical fights on the streets of Vienna. Dolphus, the, as you say, the prime minister, the chancellor, he sends... Effectively, he's hunting down the communists, he's clamping down on on them in particular, and they are hiding in the sewers of Vienna. So anyone who's read Graham Greene's novel, which of course takes place at the end of the Second World War, but much the same, you've got... Uh, you know, spies hiding in the sewers of Vienna, much as what was happening in the 19, early 1930s. And Eric Geddy is 
there helping and he's there also with another figure you might be surprised to have read Kim Philby I find he's there in 1933-34 and I have some very interesting analysis which would be good for people to carefully read what I've discovered uh, and I think it's important to say it doesn't change the story ultimately of the, of the spy and traitor Philby but it does give us a new understanding of that early period just before he gets recruited by the Russians. Right. It really is fascinating because all I had heard is that this was the period where Philby turned and you really mm -hmm. lay out all the details in much <clears throat> broader terms than anything I had read before. So it really gave me a lot of insight into what was happening before the Angelus. So uh, kudos to you. And I mean, Philby, for people who don't know, was really this penetration agent, right? One of the yes. Cambridge Five, right? Yes, he's one of the top penetration agents. And if it's when you go into the detail, I think we, we grow up reading various stories and books and only when we go into the detail, and I'm not expecting to find this stuff. I'm not going out looking to change the, the historical narrative. It's what I'm reading in the files. And Philby is ultimately recruited as a penetration agent on a park bench when he finally returns to London in in. Uh, April 1934. So he's in Vienna in 33 and 34. In April, he, he marries a leading top communist woman. They come back to England. Kendrick absolutely must have issued her British passport. And it does lead a question, how could he miss them? I leave that as a question while I let people to read the book. But he's, he's not recruited until about a month later on a park bench I think it was Regent's Park in London. So what's happening in that period before? Is he really working for SIS MI6 before that period? Question mark. And if you look at the other characters, and there's a very interesting American journalist, Dorothy Thompson. And there's a question mark over, yeah, she's not just reporting on the political state. I think she's also passing back intelligence. So, yeah, fascinating in that respect, too. So he might have been an SIS agent before he was turned, right? That was well, maybe not formally, but he may have loosely been working for Kendrick. And, and the reason I say that is because some of the paper trail that I found in the Foreign Office files, deeply embedded, again, I was not looking for that. I was looking to reconstruct some of this political turmoil of that period. Right, and he was friends with another Kendrick asset, Gedi, who we mentioned before. So he was in the mix with those people going on. And what kind of happened from 34? I think that Dolphus was kind of an antagonist of Hitler, right? And I think that that led to, yeah. It kind of he was assassinated. So it's a very, very dangerous times. You've got huge potential instability. In fact, Kendrick and his secret secretaries as i should call them those that were actually working on the other stuff not just passport control they they believe that hitler could annex austria in 34 i mean it didn't happen in the end because you've got mussolini muscling a bit on his troops on the border saying that he's going to support the british and not you know making sure hitler doesn't annex austria at that point of course it does all go pear shape a bit later so they were, they were never quite sure. Intelligence was vital at this time, but Kendrick was never quite sure when things would come to a head. And, and it did calm down in that 
in Vienna in 35, 36. Other stuff was going on in Germany, the Nuremberg laws, of course, in 1935, which restricted the rights of Jews. You, in this period, got Jewish refugees pouring in from Germany. So Kendrick's really aware of the impact of the Nazi regime. And then, of course, bang, it happens to Austria overnight. The you know, gunning for the Jewish community in Austria happens overnight after Hitler annexes Austria in March 1938. And this is really serious. Kendrick knows it's coming. There's intelligence on the ground. There's mobilization of troops. And there is a, a huge force that he wakes up and on the streets of Vienna yeah, all night the forces have been and airborne forces have been pouring into this relatively small country. Right. I mean, it was immediate. So I think that was what March twelfth, nineteen thirty-eight. So what? I mean, it really changed the entire, t- you know, tenor of the whole country. Right. So what happened? Oh, in very very tense. I mean, dramatic. It's starting to snow a bit as well. You've got th- these hefty troops. You know disproportionate actually in terms of on the, on the streets of Vienna there you've got suddenly swastikas appearing on Jewish businesses Jewish people hiding you know for fear for to come out Sigmund Freud is subject to a raid on his apartment within 24 hours and a week later another raid his son is under house arrest martin his daughter is temporarily carted off and interrogated potentially they thought oh gosh she could end up in a concentration camp these are incredibly dangerous times and kendrick reports to the foreign office you know within just a couple of weeks 500 jewish intellectuals have decided to commit suicide because they know what's coming and they don't think they're going to make it they're not going to fall into the hands of the nazis and in early april you've got over seven thousand jewish males carted off to concentration camps in germany and then what's kendrick face on a daily basis from the first morning he comes to the office and there are literally hundreds upon hundreds of jews queuing all the way around the the building down the street round the corner they are desperate and this would mark six months because he, he doesn't survive in austria more than six months as, as we know kendrick will probably explain shortly and he embarks on this humanitarian mission for which I'm trying to get him recognised. I've put in an application at Yad Vashem in Jerusalem. He is incredible. We have to remember that what he goes on to do in terms of faking visas in the end, it was very difficult to get Jews out of Austria. He does use legal channels. This becomes quite difficult. The British government put pressure and start restricting the situation and what who can and can't come out. So he forges passports. He issues illegal visas for 11 youngsters to go into Palestine to attend a so-called sporting event because they don't come back. <laughs> he knows any way to get Jews out out of the country and even some of the communists that he'd been following and spying on were also at risk so this massive rescue effort and the foreign office files place it at about 200 jews a day he is getting out and smuggling out of austria and i think we have to remember that he didn't have to do this he could have just carried on and prioritized 
on his intelligence work, which he did struggle to keep going in the background, which he does, you know, but he's working 12, 15 hours a day now, literally only on these rescue efforts. Right. And so there's huge persecutions taking place, burning down of synagogues. It yeah. started immediately. So these guys were in a rush. There was a uh, one thing that I found amusing was they were trying to turn some of the Jews Christians. So they're teaching them <laughs> the Lord's Prayer and trying to get on. So, I mean, it's really super courageous. So, and that's not a story that I'd heard before. I've heard a lot of uh, stories about the Holocaust, but I didn't yeah. know about Kendrick. So, I'm glad that you've uncovered that. I mean, what else kind of things they did? I mean, they were sent to Dachau. So, 38 Dachau, yes. the train went to straight to Dachau in Germany. Yeah. Um, so, it was very serious. Like, the Jew, these the persecution was life or death for these people, right? Yeah, absolutely. And he's desperately writing to any country, particularly in the, the British dominions or under British kind of control empire, to see, you know, please take in. And we now know that there's a whole community that made it to what is now Namibia and to Kenya, who are just beginning to realise that it was Kendrick that saved their lives. And I mean, you know, they've now got families children, grandchildren that wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Kendrick. And I suppose might get us thinking, why did he do it? You know, he has a moral compass. Yes, he's a spy, a spy master. And we know at points he would be prepared to kill for his country or kill to protect the deepest secrets of his country. And yet he also has this strong moral compass. What makes him a rescuer rather than a bystander? Yeah, it really is fascinating. So he's actually in the right spot at the right time to help all those people out. And uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it's a really incredible story. And they were arresting like very famous people. And he was friends with a lot of these Jews or half Jewish people. Yes. Like he was mixing in that culture. So he had very personal reasons as well, I think. Well, with the, yeah, I do. And with the Americans, he, he helped Sigmund Freud out of Vienna. Certainly, we absolutely know that. I interviewed members of the Freud family, and that is now recognised that muscling in together to, to get Freud out, and it wasn't that easy. Sigmund Freud, incredibly famous. His books had been burned in Germany in May 1933. His books were banned. They were now banned immediately in Austria, he was at risk. And I think when he, after that second raid by the Gestapo, he realized that his whole family were at risk. I mean, you know, he's towards the end of his life, he's desperately ill, but he realizes he's the only way that he can get his own family out. And they go out together. And it still takes nearly two months to get him out. And he is probably one of Vienna's most famous figures. Right. So they're really trying to get things, but he's also under pressure as well for his intelligence. Like he's kind of sensing that he's not going to be there forever either. Right. Well, it's a very dangerous game, isn't it? Really, yeah. really dangerous. You don't know if anyone can be turned and that's ultimately what happened. He was betrayed by a double agent by March, 1938. Czechoslovakia is really at risk 
it isn't actually annexed until the following March 1939, but you don't know that. And there's this frantic scurry of his agents going across the border into Czechoslovakia, some of them working out of Bruno, B-R-N-O. You can look, look that one up, um, Bruno, I think it's pronounced. Uh, there was a theatre there, and I think, again, some of his network worked undercover use the theatre as a sort of cover, but they're passing intelligence out. Really, really critical point. So May, June, July 1938, at any moment it was believed Hitler could annex Czechoslovakia. In the end, there was the appeasement deal with our then Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain in September 1938. But, you know, at this point you don't know that that's going to be achievable. It became too dangerous for Kendrick's own family by July to stay in the city. That's how bad it was. They're not Jewish, but it was too dangerous for them to stay in the city. And he says goodbye to them. There was a very moving photograph. I find it quite moving in the book of him on the Vienna train station. All you can see is a sort of slight part of his cheek, can't you, with this trilby hat. Uh, just like something out of a Donna Carey spy novel. And there he is saying goodbye to his daughter and his grandchildren. And he and his wife are the only ones that stay behind. Yeah, that's wow. Yeah, so he sends his family off. And I find it fascinating, too, that he had to sit down with Adolf Eichmann, like one of the real monsters of uh, Germany, talking to him, trying to negotiate. Can you talk a little bit about that? I would love to know more about precisely what happened it's very sketchy in the archive but we definitely know Eichmann was posted to Vienna in May 38 because the priority then the final solution was was ratified the the whole kind of annihilation program of Europe's Jews wasn't really kind of formally ratified until January 1942. It wasn't to say Jews weren't being murdered and weren't disappearing, but Eichmann was sent to Vienna initially to just get Jews out of German territory. So so Austria is now seen as as Germany. It's part of greater Germany. There is no Austria anymore. We still refer to it as Austria, but uh, we're chatting, but we have to imagine this is now Germany right. and Hitler does not want German Jews in the borders of Germany. So Eichmann sent to Vienna, find any way to get Jews out of G- Germany. And at this point, it's not necessarily killing them, just get them out. And so Kendrick, we know, bargains with Eichmann to get Jews out. And I would love to know more about that operation, but he's summoned to Eichmann's office and I, I just would love to find a transcript somewhere of that meeting. Yeah, it would be fascinating to see what's going on because he's clear. Kendrick is clearly working to get all these people out, right? So he's working from one angle, and Eichmann's working from another angle. Uh, but he's fearless. You know, he's quite happy to stand up to Eichmann. And there's another scene. There's actually reported in the in the press. Of one day around this time, Kendrick looks out of his office and he sees a group of Jews scrubbing the streets. I mean, we've probably all seen these images across Nazi Germany. Uh, one of them was a pregnant woman. The other one was a surgeon, we know. And and the thought 
you know, Kendrick looks as this surgeon scrubbing with this acid solution. You've got the buckets, this acid solution. You've got the stormtroopers, the SS standing around, jeering, kicking them occasionally. And, you know, the thought passes his mind. How many lives have those hands saved? And he's, he's just absolutely furious by what he sees. He storms out of the British passport office, down the steps, and he kicks over the bucket of acid solution. And he, he stares those SS down and the stormtroopers and says, not on my patch. You can't hear him saying it. And I think, again, these are actions highly risky, People disappeared, not only Jews. A couple of his own agents had disappeared in March 38. He managed to get them out. They found them. But we mustn't underestimate it wasn't just risky for Jews either. And he's taking great risk. Right. So he took a lot of risk, I mean, and stayed. And uh, what happened next? We talked about the fact he's betrayed by this double agent, and the Gestapo don't move immediately. They're still trying to sort of build up a little bit about his network. But within just a few weeks, they arrest one of the managers. He's Austrian uh, manager working for Kendrick, also doing a bit of secret work as well as visa work in actual fact. And he's just disappeared. This is one Friday in August. And, and it's a warning sign. Kendrick gets that kind of spiny feeling up his, you know, tingling feeling that, something's not right this is this is just not an ordinary run-of-the-mill arrest that he's, he's had to deal with before so he and his wife leave really early eight before 8 a.m one morning and they're out of vienna well the gasapo turn up to arrest him he's not there all the border guards are notified and he almost makes it out. He's close to the border and he's, he's heading for Kitzbühel in the mountains and he's near Freilassing. He's almost out. Car is stopped by a, an unexpected checkpoint. There is an assassination attempt on his life en route as well. Very, very dramatic assassination attempt. Car stops, he's hauled out. His wife returns on her own. She's not arrested. They don't suspect her. He is back in Vienna. The Hotel Metropole in Vienna is the Gestapo headquarters. He's there receiving eight-hour interrogation with no break at night, solitary confinement, sort of Soviet-style interrogation it's referred to in the Foreign Office files. And we don't know he's going to survive. And there's this panic back in London because they know he's been arrested. His wife goes to the our diplomat, our ambassador, and says, you know, Kendrick's disappeared. And they didn't know where he was at that point. And there's this whole, you get a sense in the files, this whole panic, because this is their top spy master in Europe and he's been arrested. What does this mean for the whole of MI6's work across Europe? And they get recalled. The spies and agents like Frank Foley, we go back to him, working undercover, they all get recalled. And that's serious at a time when we needed intelligence. And our official files and the official history of MI6 says this was the most serious incident to befall MI6 in the first 30 years of its history. You think, wow, that gives us a sense of just how dangerous and damaging this was for the whole of the secret intelligence service. 
Right. No, it's incredible. So he gets he gets in Gestapo. He's kept there, and somehow he gets out. Right. So there's a bit of talk- bargaining. Yeah, a bit of bargaining in the background. Our ambassador in Berlin is muscling in and saying, "Look, you know, he's not a spy." <laughs> Kendrick sort of is under interrogation. I'm not a spy. Doesn't allegedly doesn't give them anything. I don't think he does. Now, we mentioned Munich early. We mentioned the appeasement with Chamberlain. That was on the cards for the following month for September 1938. And we are now the middle of August 38. Kendrick's banged up in the Hotel Metropole. Horrific interrogation. But the Germans decide not to kill him. And I think because of Munich, that's my interpretation, that if it wasn't for Munich coming up the following month, it was already sort of being discussed on the cards. This was a a massive warning to the British government. We are expelling your senior spy. We know all about him. We know who he is. We're going to expel him. We also know all about the network. We don't know how much of that's true. But it was enough to send shivers right through Whitehall and through MI6 circles. So they expelled him on charges of spying, which, of course, he always disavowed. <laughs> we now know it's true. <laughs> right. so, so he's heads back, but that's not really the end of his whole story. I mean, there's a lot more. We're at about 40 minutes. There's a lot more to his story because he's involved in uh, interrogating Hess when he flies over in 41. There's yes. a lot more to this. I mean, it's a really a fascinating story just following him through World War II, Kendrick, and what he did. And I mean, he's involved in some of these things. Can you give the reader what else is in the book before we wrap it up? Yeah, it's it overlaps a little bit, but not totally with my book, The Walls Have Ears, because Kendrick goes on to form with no blueprint, a massive intelligence gathering organization you could say spying on Germany from within Britain's borders. And he's doing that because it's some secret sites in Britain, just outside London, these stately homes, he's embedded microphones in light fittings, walls, in billiards tables, in the plant pots, everything. And we are bugging the conversations of German prisoners of war, over 10,000 of them that had vital intelligence. They're not going to give us up an interrogation. We need this stuff. So they get a sort of soft interrogation. They go back to their room and they boast to their mate what they haven't told Kendrick's interrogators. But the crucial thing also, I think, for your audience would be really interested in America in particular, that after Pearl Harbor, within two weeks, American intelligence officers start arriving at Kendrick sites and there's a very close working relationship. And I have st- some really wonderful stories, uh, particularly Hermoth Jestin, one of the interrogators, has some funny stories about how he charms the generals and gets intelligence from them with a bottle of whiskey and, and brandy. Uh, you know, the wonderful story. So there's this close Anglo-American intelligence relationship and Kendrick's at the heart of making this work and laying the foundations, I guess, of how intelligence was done going forwards and prepares the allies, so not just British intelligence, but prepares allied intelligence, including America, together, working together for the Cold War. Right, so it goes on to that next step. And I hope this book brings this guy to more people's 
knowledge and understanding, Thomas Joseph Kendrick, somebody I hadn't heard about. So thanks for writing this book. Really fascinating. Where's the best place to get Spymaster? Uh, in America, is Amazon good and Barnes and yeah. Noble? I'm not sure what's your usual outlet, but it is available in America. It was published just a couple of days ago, so it should be widely available. I guess you can also order direct from Yale University Press website. And you have an audio book of this too, correct? Yes, it's on Kindle. It's every format you would want, really, hopefully. <laughs> okay, cool. And what should give me, uh, state your website again, please www.helen-fry.com. Gotcha. And so people, if they have any questions or want to reach out to you, they can contact you through that website, correct? Yes, there's a contact page. You can. I'm very, very active on Twitter. You can send me a message on Twitter, post something if you've enjoyed this podcast, if you've enjoyed the book. And we've got quite a conversation going. And what's wonderful, this is new history coming out. I'm not the only historian writing about these new intelligence history, but the public are fascinated by it. And it's getting a real conversation going amongst the public, but also amongst our historians and academics. And, and that's across the world it's very very exciting yeah and your twitter handle is at dr helen fry all one word right so people can go check that out as well yes awesome. and they can be part of this conversation can't they they can be part of understanding and contributing to the discussion of this history via twitter or or wherever yeah yeah it's a great opportunity for people to uh, learn about some new angles new aspects new facets of uh, world war ii again the title of the book is spy master the Man Who Saved MI6 by author Helen Fry. Thank you so much, Helen. I appreciate it. Thank you, William. All right, take care. Stay there. Stay there. All right, that was perfect. That was